Please turn with me to our scripture reading for this morning, which can be found in the book of Acts. Specifically, we'll be looking at chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 4. Acts chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 4. And if you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, there are some under your pews, and the page number for the passage in those Bibles is 1,156. Acts chapter 1, and I'll begin at verse 12. It reads, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey in a way, journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his boughs gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Alkeldema, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who was who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go, his own, go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a ru mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Well, good morning. I'm excited to preach this morning. This is exciting. I love it. I uh, appreciate this opportunity to be able to open the Word of God with you. And we are back in the book of Acts. I always wander around from passage to passage when I'm up here, so I thought I'd stay put. We talked about Acts chapter 1 in June, and we're going to continue on with that, so consider this a series, however disjointed it may be, that's where we're at, okay? So hopefully you'll, you'll have your Bibles open to the passage that was just read, and really you can see from the title this morning that our, uh, our topic is Stepping Forward in Obedience 
and faith. Stepping forward in obedience and faith. Because I think that's what's going on here as we look at this passage that involves the apostles, what they do next now that Jesus is gone. And if you remember anything about the last uh, passage we talked about, it was Jesus' parting words to the apostles before he was taken up into heaven. You know, these were Jesus' last instructions that he could give to them before he was no longer physically present with them. And now we see their first actions that they take now that their master isn't around. So let's dive into this. Um, I'm going to ask you this question up front, though. Have you ever lost a mentor that you looked up to or relied upon for advice and comfort? Let me ask that again. Have you ever lost a mentor that you looked up to or relied upon for advice and comfort? Mentors can come in a variety of forms in our lives. They're individuals who we view as wise, uh, strong, comforting, or maybe just good listeners. They're incredibly significant, especially in our younger years. Think of somebody who you have consistently gone to over the years, perhaps for advice or for comfort. And just think in your mind, who is that person for you? Or who was that person for you, maybe? Maybe it's somebody who's passed on. Uh, Maybe it's somebody who no longer lives in the area. Maybe it's changed over the years. Maybe you have multiple. It can be incredibly difficult when you lose a mentor like that. When mentors are taken away from us, Suddenly, we're faced with a pivotal turning point in our life. Suddenly, the person we relied upon so much is gone, and we're left to wonder, how am I going to survive on my own? I've always relied upon this person for strength. I've always been able to go to them for wisdom whenever I faced a challenge or a question I didn't know how to answer, Um, and it could be really difficult going forward all of a sudden, especially if that person's taken away from you suddenly. to to carry on in a world without them. But you see, in those moments, that's where we have to dig deep, place our trust in God like we never have before, and step forward in faith, believing that he will give us the strength to carry on. You know, it's hard to imagine in the moment, but sometimes God allows a mentor to be taken away from us so that we're left with nothing but God. Maybe a place where we should have been all along, And maybe we never really wanted to be on our own, so God kind of forcibly puts us in that place. And it's maybe a lesson that we don't want to learn, but God kind of brings it upon us, and suddenly we're we're left to realize, you know what, God will never leave us or forsake us. And now it's just me and him. Um, Just me and him. Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, we see the apostles are suddenly left in a world without the physical presence of their master, their teacher, their mentor, Jesus. You see, in this previous section, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, which I preached on in June, uh, Jesus gave his final instructions to the apostles before he was taken up into heaven. And now, after three years of Jesus teaching them, discipling them, guiding them, training them, demonstrating his power before them, Jesus is suddenly gone. Of course, he's not really gone, right? After all, Jesus promised them that he would be with them, quote, to the very end of the age, and we know that's true. But there's a very real sense in which Jesus will no longer be physically present with them at this point, and that's a change. That's a shift for them. So while in the past the disciples played a secondary role, you might say, watching and learning from their master, now for the first time 
they're going to be forced to step out on their own. So just like any mentor being suddenly taken away from us, these first steps can be scary. So here's the question. As we read this passage, we're asking, how are they going to do? Now that Jesus isn't there with them to tell them every single step that they should take, every little thing they should do, how are these apostles going to do? I propose to you that according to what we see in these verses that follow, that the apostles step out both in obedience and in faith by taking up their responsibility to lead in a new era where both Jesus has ascended and now also where there will be guided by the Holy Spirit. That's the main point. Let me say that again because that was a mouthful. In these verses, okay, I'll say it again, the apostles step out both in obedience and faith by taking up their responsibility to lead in a new era where both Jesus is now physically absent and now they are going to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And as we go through this passage, specifically chapter 1, verse 12 through verse 26, we'll see this theme developed a little bit more fully. In short, I believe their faith and obedience to Christ is shown in three distinct ways, okay? And just scan over your Bibles so you can see what I mean, and then we'll get into these in detail, okay? So if you look down at verses 12 and 13, I think they, they show their faith and obedience by following his instructions to remain in Jerusalem. That's verses 12 and 13. Then if you move on to verse 14, they obey by devoting themselves to prayer. And then if you look in verses 15 through following, all the way to verse 26, this is by far the biggest section. I would say they show their faith and obedience by replacing Judas. So three major ways that we see them carrying on on their own, three major ways in which I think they're stepping out in both faith and obedience. So let's look at these in detail, right? We're, we're talking about verses 12 and 13, so look down at those verses for now. Uh, they stepped out in faith and obedience by remaining where they were. So it says in these verses, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Okay, so those are our opening verses, as it were. We see from the very beginning that as soon as Jesus is taken up into heaven, they obey his commands. And what are we referring to there? Well, if you jump back to Acts verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 4, shouldn't be far away for you. It says, and while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, okay? That was part of his final commands, the final things they were supposed to do, he says, wait, stay here. And what do we see? As soon as he is taken up into heaven, they are obeying, okay? They must have been on this Mount of Olivet when he was talking to them, so it says they, they go from there even further into Jerusalem, okay? They return there, just like they were supposed to. Now, according to Jewish tradition at the time, one wasn't supposed to travel more than 2,000 cubits, which is equivalent to today's kilometer, which is 0.6 of a mile, okay, on the Sabbath. It says they traveled a Sabbath day journey. And, and that rule wasn't written anywhere in the Old Testament, right? This is something they kind of came up with. All they knew in the Old Testament was you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Well, all these questions arose. What 
constitutes work, right? How many steps do you got to take before it becomes work? So the rabbis came up with this idea, no more than 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath. That was a Sabbath day journey. So it says they only took a Sabbath day journey to be able to go from Olivet to Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't say specifically that this is on a Sabbath. Okay, we can maybe infer that. Maybe that's why they only went so far. We don't know. But if it was a Sabbath, we can at least see what's going on here is they're starting out at least trying to obey in any way that they can. They're going to Jerusalem. Let's assume it's a Sabbath. They're not going to go any further than what the law prescribes. So they stop there. And they go into this upper room. Um, What's an upper room anyway? I always read this and thinking, like, it's just saying the upper room, like we know what they're talking about. Oh, yeah, I've got an upper room in my house. What does that mean? Um, Well, an upper room, as far as I can tell from what I've studied, uh, either refers to something as simple as an attic, or if you're talking about maybe a more expensive home in Jerusalem, it could be a larger place, something that could maybe even accommodate a lot of different individuals. And that's what we see here. So for whatever room this was, whatever house this was, it doesn't tell us, seems to be where the apostles were staying for the time being. And it's big enough, large enough of a house that this upper room can accommodate all these individuals who are listed here. And we see that listed here for us. All right, so it says in uh, verse 13 that the, the apostles are gathered. We have Peter, okay, and I'm going to go through each of these. He's also called Simon. We have John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, who is also called Nathaniel in some other texts, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, also called Simon the Canaanite in other passages, and Judas the son of James, who is also called Thaddeus uh, in other passages as well. And then, of course, what's missing from this list is Judas, obviously, because he has uh, taken his own life at this point and he's not among them. Now, as you may have picked up as I read that list for you, Some of these individuals went by other names, which are not listed uh, here. So you have lists of the apostles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and if you were to take all those and line them up, you might say, hold on, these don't quite align right. Uh, What's the deal? Well, it's, it's an easy solution, really. Some of these individuals went by different names. So, for example, I said uh, that Bartholomew was sometimes called Nathaniel, right, um, and, and that shouldn't really concern us. You, don't let that bother you too much, because notice even in today's passage, if you go to Acts 1, verse 23, it says one of the men that's put forward to replace Judas Iscariot is called Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice. So even this guy that we're named right here has three different names, okay? It was just a common thing to do, okay? And I, I was trying to think of a modern example of this, and then it occurred to me, somebody told me that our very own Zach Herb uh, is, is an individual like this with three different names. I'm told, I've just heard this, that among the teens here, he's known by uh, Zach. He's known as Charles, as a nickname. And I even believe on one occasion at uh, Victory Valley, he was nicknamed Mr. E. Mystery. I oh, see, see what he did there. So, yeah, he is a man of mystery. So uh, there is examples here, okay, of somebody uh, being, there's a modern example of somebody going by uh, three different names. Thank you, Zach, for letting me use. I did talk to him ahead of time, so I was, I was okay. Uh, unlike my daughter, Amy, who I thought I'd mentioned by name because she told me not to. All right. Um, she's over in the fellowship hall. It's okay. Um, I digress. The point of this 
is that these individuals sometimes went by different names. So we've got the right list, okay? They're all gathered here, and, uh, and they're staying where they're supposed to. First way they show obedience, first way they're showing faith, they're doing what Jesus told them to. Point number two, now we go to verse 14. The apostles stepped out in obedience and faith by devoting themselves to prayer. Verse 14, let's read that. It says, all these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of, of Jesus and his brothers. Okay, verse 14 there. If, if we start at the end of this verse, we see that uh, the apostles were joined by some uh, other individuals as well. So we said the apostles are there, but there's more than that. It says that with them are the women, okay? Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers as well. So the women, that's a very ambiguous term. We don't really know who's included here. They're not specifically identified, um, but we have some guesses, right? If we go back to Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, you don't have to turn there. Um, I'll read it for you. It says, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom the seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Huzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them, that's the apostles, out of their means. Okay, so here's a list of women at one point in Jesus' ministry who followed him around, who were healed of various diseases and being possessed by demons, who provided for the apostles. Okay, could include some of them. If we go to Luke 24, again, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. And it says, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they, that is the women, uh, told these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them uh, these things to the apostles. All right? So, again, another list of women that were with Jesus for this significant moment, I'm sorry, who went to the tomb after he had uh, been crucified. So, uh, while we can't specifically cite who exactly is here, I have some likely guesses, okay? In both of those lists, Mary Magdalene is listed and Joanna are both listed here. I'm willing to bet that they are both in this room, in this upper room. Uh, and among them are probably some other women that we don't know, but I'm willing to guess based on how close they were that these two are here in this scene as well. Additionally, we're told in Acts 1:14 that Mary, that's Jesus' mother, was there and also Jesus' brothers. They're listed for us in Matthew chapter 13. Again, I'll just read this for you. Matthew 13, 53, uh, others say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So he's got four brothers. And that passage is gonna later tell us he also has sisters. So maybe they're included with the women here. You know, it says initially that they didn't believe in him while Jesus was on earth, but we get the sense that later on, apparently, according to this passage, they're here. They believe. At some point, Jesus' brothers come to faith, which is just incredible to think of, and possibly his sisters as well. And many even think that the James in our Bible, that book, is written by the brother of Jesus which is just crazy to think about. I mean, we've got a book of the Bible written by the brother of Jesus, or as you could say half-brother of Jesus. So I'm, I'm saying all this, getting into all this detail, in that it's just an incredible picture of, of all these individuals who are gathered here. 
You know, one of the famous paintings is uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, right? I I imagine many of you can picture that in your head, what that scene looks like. I almost wish that da Vinci would have painted this scene because to me, it's even more exciting. It's just neat for me to imagine. You've got the 11 apostles here. You've got Mary, his own mother, his brothers, maybe his sisters, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, different women. This is like everybody who was ever close to Jesus, especially toward the end of his life, all gathered together, right? Now, what are they doing? Well, they're not just all gathering here taking a selfie, right? Which is what I would have done. But they don't have that, and that's not what they did. Right? They, they are, they're doing something far better. They are, they're praying, right? So if we go back and, and look uh, here in verse 14, all of these were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All right? So they, they're praying, and, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, it's exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and I say that given that Jesus didn't tell them what exactly they were supposed to do in this moment, right? They already went back to Jerusalem. They knew they were supposed to do that. But beyond that, what else? Well, you pray. You pray. And I think that's significant because it's the first time that the apostles no longer have Jesus telling them specifically where to go and what to do. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told them, quote, to watch and pray. They followed him everywhere. But now those days are gone. They must decide what to do now in the absence of their master leading them by the hand, step by step. You can imagine all these individuals went to Jerusalem. Okay, we followed that command. Where are we going to go? I guess we'll go to the upper room. That's where most of us are staying. Makes sense. They're sitting around. Now what? Jesus didn't tell us. We pray. We pray. Somebody said that of this group, or a bunch of them did. Somebody had to take the initiative and say, we're going to pray. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer. They don't have Jesus around anymore to tell them what to do, so somebody steps up, and that's what happens. You know, have you ever had a moment that's come upon you suddenly been in a situation where you're used to somebody else calling the action, calling the shots, and then for one reason or another, they're not there. And maybe something goes wrong, and suddenly everyone looks to you for direction. Have you ever had a moment of panic where suddenly you realize you're now the one in charge, and everybody's looking at you saying, well, what do we do now? Okay, this is not a perfect example, but I had a moment that I kind of brought upon myself a few years ago at Teen Week where... I suddenly had on a Friday night, it was the all-nighter, and we were just done with the session and done with the music and everything like that, and I said to the teens from the microphone, all right, everybody pack up their their chairs, put them off to the side, or or set everything back up again, and everybody go get on the bus. And I think it might have been either Charlie or John who said, "Uh, we're not supposed to go anywhere for a half hour. And all these teens, 50 or 60 of them, start heading to the door. And uh, this was a problem I brought on myself, by the way. Um, But then... All of a sudden, people look at me and go, well, are you going to tell them anything? Are you going to say anything? As this mass of teens are, are walking out the door. So, okay, yeah, I guess i got to say something, right? Sometimes you're, you're brought into those uh, situations, maybe not by your own fault, but maybe just all of a sudden people are looking to you for leadership, something to do. Are you going to say anything? Are you going to lead, right? 
These are the challenges that we sometimes face. Um, what do you do if you're faced with a tough decision at work? You stop and pray. Or if your son, and daughter, son or daughter comes to you with a difficult situation that you're not quite sure how to respond to, you pray. If you're overwhelmed with life, stop and pray. I think that's always a wise answer, and I think the apostles are wise here. Their choice to pray leads me to point number three, the third way that the apostles respond in obedience and faith. And I think their decision to pray should immediately rule out any presupposition that what they're about to do now in verses 15 through 26 is done with haste or carelessness. Far from it. I think prayer is what leads them to the wisdom of what they do next. So let's look at point number three, right? Just to review, they've shown obedience and faith, number one, by going back to Jerusalem, like Jesus said. Number two, they showed obedience and faith by praying. And now number three, I think they show incredible obedience and faith by choosing someone to replace Judas. Let's look at these verses together. This is a larger section, so we'll spend the most amount of time on it. Verses 15 through 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Okay, so we see Peter all of a sudden taking a major leadership role here. The company of persons in all were about 120, and he said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong burst open in the middle, uh, and all of his bowels gushed down, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language Akaldama, which is field of blood. Now, pause. I don't think Peter's getting into all that. That's an aside written by Luke, who's just kind of including that for us to say, this is what happened to Judas, Okay. That's an aside. I'm not going to cover a whole lot of that in this message. It doesn't um, pertain to what we're talking about here, but that's what that's about. So Peter continues. He says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And, quote, this is a second quotation of Scripture, Let another take his office, end quote. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and... Um, uh, <coughs> Uh, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward the two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, this is the process that we just read about how they chose this replacement for Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Before I go any further, I want to first disclose that I'm taking this decision to be a positive one. Uh, there's another view that says that, in fact, maybe Paul should have been considered Judas's replacement, and that therefore the apostles are entirely in error in these verses. Um, I personally don't see this passage that way, and I just want to give a few reasons before we move on so you know where I'm coming from. 
Number one, as I've studied this, virtually all the top commentaries on Acts interpret the action of choosing Matthias as the right one. So that's the ESV Study Bible, Tyndale, Box, Baker commentary, on and on, NIV application commentary. It was overwhelming. Uh, usually the consensus is this, is this is a positive thing. Number two, the apostles' action here is guided by prayer, which I already mentioned, uh, through and through. It does not, therefore, seem to be an attempt on their part to do what is, quote, right in their own eyes. Uh, rather, throughout this process, it seems that they desire to have the decision come from the Lord. So if you look at verse 24, that's what they're appealing to. Number three, nowhere in the New Testament does it ever directly condemn their decision that they're made here in, in Acts, nor does Paul even ever come out and say that he was supposed to be the 12th apostle. Rather, we see Paul's apostleship as being unique from the other 12. God calls him the apostle to the Gentiles, which seems to be of a different ilk, a different category than the 12. Um, number four, though some have pointed out that Matthias isn't actually mentioned again after he's chosen here, which is true. You don't ever hear from him again. The same is actually true of all the other apostles, aside from Peter, James, and John. Um, none of the other guys are mentioned either after this point, but we wouldn't take away their apostleship from, from them either. Uh, and then in fi finally, in regards to the apostles casting lots, you'll see at the end how they ultimately choose is by prayer and casting lots. Uh, I don't think we should necessarily see that as a negative thing. Casting of lots was used a lot in the past as a means of determining the will of the Lord. So we see that in Numbers chapter 26, verse 55, Joshua 18, 6 through 10, 1 Chronicles 24, and I could go on and on. It doesn't mean that we should cast lots now, I don't think, uh, but it does mean that the apostles used what means they had prior to the time when they were given the Holy Spirit. And I think in general, as you look over this whole passage, we're given it in the words of Peter, and it seems to be presented to me in a very positive light. So those are the reasons why I, I take the text at face value uh, as a positive thing. And I think, again, this is a third way in which they're showing obedience and faith. But here, specifically in verses 15 through 26, I think this is where we see Peter finally start to rise up and be the leader that God wanted him to be. You can think of a ton of examples before Jesus' death, what Peter was like, right? Um, there was the time where he didn't have enough faith. Jesus called him out of the boat to walk on water, to walk toward him, and, and Peter began to sink. Um, there was the time where um, Jesus was transfigured before them, and Peter's left kind of babbling on about, God, maybe we should make you some shelters here, one for you, Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. He's not really sure what he's saying. He's just kind of spouting things off. And then, of course, the epic one is when he denies Jesus three different times. So here's Peter, who, who, who Jesus has chosen up until this point, didn't have such a great track record. Here's where I think it starts to change. He is rising to the occasion. I think see, he does so in three ways. Number one, Peter leads in wisdom and discernment by understanding how Scripture informs what they should do next. So we're getting this from verses 15 through 20. Look down at that section. Peter shows himself to be a leader in that he is a man of the Word. Verses 15 through 20 show us that not only does he know the Scriptures, but he has the wisdom to understand how it applies to their situation. He says in verse 16 that, quote, Scripture was fulfilled and that, quote, the Holy Spirit spoke through David in speaking of Judas's betrayal 
Again, he's pulling this out of the air. He knows his Bible. He knows his Old Testament. And he's able to make that connection saying, you know what? What Judas did wasn't outside of the control of God. In fact, it's cited right here. And uh, we have uh, chapter 41 of Psalms, verse 9. You don't have to turn there. Uh, one of the passages, not one that he's referencing here, but one that speaks to Judas's future betrayal. It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, hear that, that's a reference to the Last Supper, has lifted his heel against me. Um, but what Peter has in mind here are two verses from Psalms that are quoted here in Acts one twenty. So he says, um, for it is written in the book of Psalms, and here's two quotations, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and here's the second quote, let another take his office. Those two are taken from Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. If you have a study Bible or, or a Bible with columns kind of embedded in between or footnotes, you'll see those referenced there, those little cross-references, so you know that's where he's quoting from. It's from that last passage of Psalms that Peter has the wisdom to understand that Judas's departure meant that the disciples were to replace him with somebody else. When he says, let another take his office, Peter is saying, aha, that's our responsibility. Now, one thing I found and I learned from the commentaries that I never saw before, this is really cool, um, is that uh, it wasn't Judas's death that required the apostles to replace him. Why do I say that? Well, because later on in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, we see that the apostle James is actually put to death. His is the only death that is actually recorded in the Bible after Judas. The rest of, of the apostles, how they were martyred and things like that, that's known to us through tradition. But here in Acts 12, 2, we see that James is killed. He's beheaded by Herod for his faith. And you know what? The apostles don't replace him. So it's not his death that is cause for them to call for another replacement. Otherwise, the apostles would have been succeeded by this person and this person and this person on and on and on till the end of time. But it's not his death that, that is the reason for it. It's Judas's apostasy. It's the fact that he betrayed Jesus that is the reason why they need to replace him. See, in Psalm 109, which is where he's quoting, the context is referring to an evil man who has turned against somebody who is good. And if you go back sometime and read Psalm 109, you'll see this is the context. It's a psalm in which uh, the person is asking God to judge uh, this individual who has betrayed them. May he be found guilty, the psalm says. May another take his office, and so on. And so that fits very well with the context of what happened with Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. And again, Peter has the wisdom to, con to connect the dots and say, yes, Scripture predicted this all along, and Scripture tells us what to do next. So, Peter leads, number one, by seeing how Scripture connects. Number two, Peter leads by showing discernment in regarding what they are to do next. In other words, by seeing what the qualifications of an apostle are and how to proceed. All right? So, as you look down in the next verses, Peter knows that someone needs to take Judas's place, but again, Jesus is no longer here, so he can't just turn around to Jesus and say, who should we pick, right? Okay, we've got to find somebody to replace Judas. Now who? Well, Jesus isn't going to tell him, right? And he can't even really turn around to Jesus and say, what makes an apostle an apostle anyway, right? If you were to go back into the Gospels, we see Jesus picking these, these men. Sometimes it seems random to us as to which, you know, uh, individual he chose or what 
occupation they had. We see who he chooses, but Jesus never wrote down, okay, here are the five criteria I used to pick the apostles, right? <laughs> he never said that. And Peter doesn't have that either. So he, what does he have to do? We has to do what any of us have to do in a situation. He had to use wisdom, right? Uh, Peter thinks back and is wisely able to discern what separated the apostles from everyone else. And two characteristics emerge. Number one, all the apostles were with Jesus from around the time of his baptism to the end of his earthly ministry. Peter looks around at the 11, and he says, you know what, that much is true. All of us have been with Jesus since the beginning to the end. And he finds something else that they have in common. Number two, all of the apostles were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. So Peter is able to, without being able to directly ask Jesus this, again, he was able to discern two key factors that made an apostle an apostle. So he uses these criteria for choosing Judas' successor. Okay, it says in verses 21 through 23, so the men who have accompanied us during this time uh, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph and then Matthias. So those criteria leave two men who are qualified. <clears throat> that helps, right? But now they're left to wonder, how do we decide between them? And that leads us to the third and final way that Peter demonstrates his leadership. And that is he leads by committing the, the final decision of Judas's successor to the Lord through prayer, right? So he's figured out, okay, if somebody's going to be an apostle, they have to fit their qualifications, at least that Jesus used for an apostle. Number one, they were with us for the whole time. And number two, they were witnesses to his resurrection. And that's great. That narrows the field down among us to two. Of these 120 people that are here in this room, there are two that meet those criteria. Now how do we figure this out? Is it going to be Joseph or is it going to be Matthias? And here's what they do in verse 24. They prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two that you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. I said before that the first thing the apostles did when they returned was to pray. And here again, we see them not trying to make this decision on their own, not trying to go their own way, but to leave the decision in the hands of the Lord and to do so in an attitude of prayer. Now, some people approach this text with concern that the apostles cast lots but uh, I like the way that the New American Commentary explains it. And it says this, The prayer concluded, and then they cast lots. And the Greek literally reads that they gave lots to them. The meaning seems to be that they assigned lots for them. This method was likely the one depicted in the Old Testament. Mark's stones were placed in a jar and shaken out. And the one whose stone fell out first was chosen. Some have wanted to see Matthias selected by vote of the church, but the text points us more to the ancient procedure of lot casting. And one should not be put off by this chance element. In the Old Testament, the outcome was always seen to be determined by God. And finally, Daryl Bach from another commentary says this, In sum, this passage covers the obedience of the church as its members wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit. There, it seems, Peter moves to replace Judas and bring the number of apostles back to 12. 
The community is unified, praying and seeing what to do through Scripture. Here is a picture of an active community life, one of several such snapshots. Peter is leading the congregation, and the choice is left to prayer and to the Lord. Everything about the community's actions suggests that this is a community walking with God. I agree. I think that's a good summary. And so this morning, uh, when Pastor Cruz read Scripture, I included Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, in that passage. I'm not going to go through that. We're not going to get into a whole new section this morning. I'll save that for another time. But I included it to show that after this decision was made, what's significant is that the Holy Spirit comes upon them all, and it doesn't neglect Matthias. The Holy Spirit, the tongues of fire, descend on Matthias as well. And I take that to be an act of endorsement from God. So what are some applications that we can take away from this passage? Well, I said that the beginning of this passage showed us how the apostles had to step out, again, you see it in your bulletin, both in obedience and faith, by taking their responsibility to lead in a new era where Jesus' physical presence had come to an end. And you know what? The, the main idea of all this is that we are in that same scenario, right? I mean, Jesus isn't here for us to just look over our shoulder and ask him. I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, wish that were true, right? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you just thought, if only Jesus was here, I would just ask him, Jesus, what, what college should I go to? If you're younger, Jesus, who, who should I marry? What job, should I take this job offer or should I stay where I'm at? You know, my, my kids have this really difficult question, and I wish I knew how to answer them. Could you write it down for me? I'll gladly read what you have to say if, if you were just right here in front of me. But that's not the way God's designed it to work. God's told us to seek him in wisdom. And you know, the apostles had to face that for the very first time. This is the moment right after which their master, their mentor, was taken from them. And you know, they succeeded. They did what they were told to do. In areas where they weren't sure what to do, they prayed and they sought the Lord. You know, I don't know what kind of decisions face you and what kind of difficult scenario you might be facing today. Maybe it's a scenario where you say, Jesus, I just wish you would answer me from out of the clouds and tell me what to do. And, and you know what? In all likelihood, maybe that's not going to happen because maybe that's not what God wants us to do. Maybe we're to look at this passage and see the example of the apostles and realize, you know what, we're to step out in faith. We're to step out in obedience, even when we're not exactly sure what the right choice is. So may we go to every single decision that we have to make, not in arrogance, right, not in blind confidence in ourselves, but following what we saw here this morning, in faith, in a humble attitude of prayer, in a willingness to say, God, help me to be wise in everything that you've commanded me to be, but to seek you and ultimately to leave the decision to yourself in all the ways that I should. May we follow the apostles' example here as we seek to live by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, first of all, for your word that instructs us, that encourages us, that gives us a model for how to live. And we thank you for the example of the apostles that is given here before us. 
And Lord, I pray that you would help us, even though we are in a world where Jesus is no longer physically present, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We first of all know that Jesus is always with us. He has told us that. He has promised. He will never leave and forsake us, and we know that to be true. And we know that we have, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and that you say in the book of James that if we ask for wisdom, you will grant it. So first of all, Lord, help us to have faith, to believe those promises are true, to cling to them with all of our being. And then in places, Lord, where we are not told exactly where we should go, help us to have the courage to step out in faith, to lead as you would have us to lead after the manner of the apostles that we see here this morning. We ask this humbly, expecting you to do great things in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.